Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. My guest today is Emran Mayer, uh, MD. He's a professor at UCLA, and he's the author of the Mind-Gut Connection. So, Emran, uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Yeah. Um, what gave you the premise for your book? Uh, you know, how did you discover there is a connection between the mind and the gut, and do most people know there is such a thing? Well, I mean, I've spent pretty much the the better part of my career um, studying the brain-gut interactions. I've always been interested in in brain-body interactions from a clinical, but more from a research standpoint, and um, pursued that first in terms of um, communication between the brain and the cardiovascular system, the heart, and then um, really based on my decision to become a gastroenterologist, decided to shift the focus on the brain-gut connection. And in terms of the microbiome, that has not been something that that was on my horizon until I would say about six, seven years ago, when the first when the first papers came out that suggested that there is this connection of first studies been done in in mice, and that remains the same. That the majority of studies of of, of really uh, breakthrough studies have been done in experimental animals. And so when I saw these findings, I said, you know, we have to we have to sort of explore this. And uh, reluctantly, really, you have to say, got got into that. And we did a study that changed my mind, which was basically an intervention study with a, a, a very simple um, concept that you um, feed healthy people a probiotic-containing probiotic cocktail-containing yogurt for four weeks, and then you study them before and after in terms of uh, symptoms. Um, and particularly brain um, brain function, various measures of uh, brain function. And that study came out positive to a big surprise, to my big surprise. And um, ever since then, I you know we have included the gut microbiome as a major readout in all of our in all of our studies. Well, tell you know let's wake people up. What are some facts or statistics that like really surprised you? In your research, maybe just a few of them, and then we can dive in. Well, I mean, in my own, yeah. So, I mean, the biggest surprise was really at the beginning, because I, I was a huge skeptic that you could um, change emotional behaviors, uh, as has been shown in in these animal studies. And there's a lot of, you know, concern about the the the, the relevance of these early studies because they were all done in 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 mouse models that are not really translatable to humans, like these germ-free animals. So, to me, that that we could demonstrate there is a so if 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 we uh, perturb the homeostasis of the gut with the, with this probiotic cocktail that we would see a signal in the brain um of that of that change basically demonstrating that this communication from the gut to the brain from the gut microbes to the brain must exist in humans uh, as well a big difference was in that that um we we didn't really get any you know behavioral or or clinical readouts in our human population so this was 
purely a brain finding, and uh, it was it was actually not associated with a change in the microbial composition, but uh, previous study had shown that exactly the same intervention led to a change in the uh, metabolite profile that the microbes generate. And so, yeah, this to me was, was really the biggest surprise. And, you know, we have continued to do studies in that direction that, um, you know, I mean, they're still surprising that, you know, there's, that there's correlations between um, the, the the architecture of the gut microbiome and um, some features of the brain in terms of structural and and functional properties. And um, most recently, I mean, that was another big surprise. I have to say, from in in the human domain, that we we looked at the um, at the gut microbiome and symptoms and the brain in patients with irritable bowel syndrome that underwent uh, a trial of uh, a, a course of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and um, I, I mean, again, to our surprise, was that there was even after a um, relatively short course of, of, of intervention, like a four-session cognitive behavioral therapy, there were changes at um, at the brain level in terms of connectivity of, in this case, brainstem areas with other brain networks, um, but also that the microbes were somehow involved in this. They, the, the composition at baseline of the microbes, the, 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 the relative abundances, um, seemed to predict the responder, the, the responders to this therapy. So responders were defined by, by um, symptoms um, measured with uh, validated um, symptoms severity scale for IBS. Yeah, so we found so that you, you mean you could tell if a certain person with IBS was going to respond to a treatment based on their microbes or the metabolites of their microbes, or I'm not no, sure this, what you think. And this was really based on the relative abundance of of the microbes, <clears throat> and this was a big surprise because you know we did this study really hypothesizing that there would be a a, a change in the in in the microbes, both their metabolites and their relative abundances with the intervention, and we thought, you know, this would basically prove that big influence on microbial composition and function um, is being exerted by the brain, and if you modify that with a purely brain-based, uh, brain-targeted therapy, you would see that signal in the in the, in the the microbial domain as well. And, um, well, what was the, um, just to put a little context, what was the intervention that was proposed? And what did you think it would do, and what did it actually do? Well, the intervention, you know, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a fairly standardized uh, intervention. There have been previous studies um, in, in different patient populations, including IBS. There's a um, a, um, a short-term um, version of that therapy. So typically, it's 10 to 15 sessions that a patient has to go and see a specialized therapist. In this trial, we um, this was a trial by Jeff Lackner at the University of Buffalo. He compared the response, the clinical response, to three types of things: an education control, a a short-term patient-focused um, um, cognitive behavioral therapy with four sessions, and um, a traditional um, cognitive behavioral therapy trial with um, I've, I've forgotten how many. I think it was ten or fifteen sessions. And what what that studies so this was in several hundred patients. What they found 
that the two cognitive behavioral therapy interventions had a significant benefit on the symptoms of IBS, confirming earlier studies. What was interesting that this short-term therapy was as effective as um, as the traditional, you know, more more prolonged intervention. And and what it is is basically patients are. So this is not regular psychotherapy. This is teaching patients to change their coping skills, to change their stress responsiveness, um, to change, for example, uh, one characteristic trait of IBS and other chronic pain patients is, is catastrophizing, essentially assuming worst-case outcomes occurring with a with a, a very high likelihood. So these are all the the the, the, the components that are retrained by this kind of therapy and um, there's also relaxation exercises um, but anyway so this is clearly something an intervention that does not involve um, the gut as a target so there's no dietary recommendations um, you know there's typically no other lifestyle changes that are part of the intervention <clears throat> and so we thought it's a, it's, it's a perfect tool um, to demonstrate that the brain has a major influence um, on microbial composition. And that has always been, I mean, there's many studies in, in, in animals, in humans, in monkeys, that um, different types of stress will change the gut microbial composition. Typically, there's a decrease in the relative abundance of lactobacilli. Um, and um, there's also been shown that this has uh, effects on uh, tryptophan metabolism in the gut. So there's there's pretty good evidence for that. Most people, um, certainly in the drug development or in the therapeutic area, don't think so much about this top-down modulation. Everybody wants to change the gut microbiome and then expect you know behavioral therapeutic changes. This was clearly well, how do you um, how do you think that the mind? I mean, I'll, I'll just step through it as you know, I don't know. This is my assumption, but. So let's say you're, you know, you're stressed out a lot. Um, therefore, your cortisol elevates and other chemicals elevate, and it changes the environment in which your gut bacteria live, um, causing certain ones to be pressured to die out and other ones to flourish. Is that kind of the mechanism by which your gut microbiome is altered, or is there a more direct, uh, you know, connection yes. between the mind and the gut? Well, there's there's at least two ways. I mean, so the HPA axis in cortisol uh, has not really been shown that playing an important role, but the other component of the stress response, the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic um, branches of the autonomic nervous system, which, you know, innovate the entire gut and have previously been shown in many studies, animals and humans can modulate um, gut activity, um, pretty much all the gut functions from secretion to motility to regional transit to um, fluid secretion, mucus secretion. So all these gut functions are under autonomic nervous system control. So if you have a an autonomic nervous system that chronically hyperreacts to to uh, events that the individual perceives as stressful, then <clears throat> you know, I mean you have to you know, you have to assume that this will affect the habitat and the environment for for the microbes and that has been shown for acute stressors and chronic stressors um, that they all have this effect. It's to me, it's always interesting how relatively little attention that part of the the, the mind-gut microbiome um, interactions gets. You know, it's, the bias is clearly on the on the other side that can be 
influence with medications and diet and um, you know, what's the, again what's the mechanism you know if you in plain speak what's the mechanism by which your thoughts and your feelings affect your microbiome two ways the one that i just uh, mentioned that um you know through your nervous system it changes the environment that these microbes live in you know they're, like, they're, like how would it change the environment you know what's what's an example of how it could change the environment all the factors that i mentioned before um okay, regional okay. Regional transit, motility, secretion, secretion of antimicrobial peptides, there's secretion of mucus, of fluid, um, there's changes in blood flow. Uh, all of these okay. fundamentally change that habitat. And it's, you know, and most likely based on, I mean, this goes, goes sort of too far, really. So it's been studied that different kinds of emotions like anger, fear, um, anxiety have different um, patterns that they change the, the 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 gut environment. So some slow gastric emptying, others speed up gastric emptying, others um, increase contractions of the sigmoid colon, others inhibit the contractions. So you could almost hypothesize that different types of emotions, chronic emotions, create different environments for the microbes, and may and that may then uh, be translated into different metabolomic profiles uh, that that these microbes generate but there's also one other you know direct um, pathway and that is that norepinephrine so our the main one of the main stress mediators that goes up in the blood and drives up heart rate and blood pressure it's been shown that norepinephrine somehow gets into the lumen into the inside of the gut and interacts with receptors that are very uh, homologous to our you know to the human to the mammalian um, uh, adrenergic receptor, and that influences the bacterial behavior. It makes them more aggressive, more virulent, changes their gene expression profile and their behavior. And so you have really two ways. You have a direct wave through this through the stress mediator, and you have the indirect way by changing the environment. So in any case, you, you would assume a pretty profound change um, occurs in individuals that are that are chronically stressed uh, or you know are suffering from, from from chronic mental disorders and you know it's so stress and anxiety are big components of a whole range of, of psychiatric disorders so depression obviously anxiety disorders autism spectrum um, anorexia so in all these populations people have found in cross-sectional studies that there's changes in gut microbial composition and function, but we don't really know if that could be a a consequence of the underlying brain disorder or if if these altered microbial features, microbiome features, play a major role in the in, in the generation of symptoms. And, and are you and, able to establish um how fast someone's mindset can affect their gut or is this you know is this just by definition a, a long-term type of process no if you know the studies have been done with uh, acute stressors in humans um, noise or um, um, listening to to do to two different sounds in in in, on, in, in both ears uh, so there's a whole range of these acute laboratory stressors and many of those have shown an acute effect on for example, the motility of the GI tract. There's also some classic older studies where people with um, that had stomas basically where the the gut was surgically 
you know, because of an accident or because of tumor removal, the opening of the gut was visible from the outside, so you could actually observe it from the outside. And um, with acute emotional changes, changes in uh, the blood flow and the secretion in these parts of the GI tract were observed. So this happens on an acute level on, on in everybody. Um, I don't know if it happens if you get, you know, upset for five minutes because, you know, something happened in the environment, you're stuck in traffic. But certainly if, if, if you have a day that you perceive as stressful, almost certainly that will affect your 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 gut and your microbes in it. Mm. Mm. Um, I would think that depression and anxiety are, I don't know, are huge and there's going to be some big connection here. Do you know, uh, have you... Yeah, have you looked at uh, those conditions at all, or are you not there yet? Is there too much to look at? No, so we we personally have not looked at it, but there's several published papers now. I think there's three or four with depression. Typically, these are cross-sectional studies, so you can only talk about associations, not causation. And uh, all three studies have shown that there is a difference in the relative abundance and also difference in the metabolites um, that the gut microbiome produces in patients with major depressive disorders. And in a couple of these studies, they have taken, investigators have taken stool samples from these patients and put them into germ-free mice or rats that have, where the microbiome has been suppressed with antibiotics. And Mm. these animals then uh, um, adapt some kind of altered behavior. It's not always depression-like behavior, um, but it there's an alt- an alteration in the behavior of these animals, and there's an alteration when they looked at the, the gut microbiome after transplant. They they showed similar changes as as the human donor had in their in, in their gut microbiome. So the same thing uh, is is true about. I mean, there's there's a whole range of these disorders now. You know, there's there's autism spectrum, there's Parkinson's, there's depression. We have not looked at those. Um, ourselves, but there is a a growing literature which, you know, I mean, you can always criticize things. It's not controlled for dietary differences. The, the main the, the, the main concern is then there so far have not been studies that really prove the causality. You know, as I mentioned earlier, all these observations in theory could be related to the brain sending different signals to, to the gut um, in, in these patient populations. And so... The, I mean, the model, you know, the, the, I mean, the model that we have proposed to kind of explain that really for all these brain-gut microbiome disorders is that it's really a, a circular process which can be initiated by an influence of the brain on the microbes, changes the microbes, changes the metabolites. Metabolites feed back to the brain and either reinforce or, you know, amplify certain features. And then the brain sends back the signal to the gut. So it's a it's a circular um, system. You can't really say it's either caused from the gut or from the brain. Uh, so that mm. that's the, the model that you know that mm. we we think fits best most of the published data to date. Is there one is there one way you think that um, acts faster or is more powerful? I mean, do you see it as a uh, as a cooperative thing between mind and gut, or as a battle? You know what what. Which side would you pick? I guess if uh, you had to pick a side, you know. No, in the in the in a healthy person, clearly it's um, it's a symbiotic system. It's it's beneficial 
you know, the brain gets important information from the gut and the, and the microbes, um, you know, have an optimal environment to live in and they have adapted to this environment. But in in disease states, then, you know, I mean, I personally still think a lot of, and I mean, I may be wrong, you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, I think that a lot of these traditional brain disorders, either neurology or in, in psychiatry, have a very prominent brain component that may be at the beginning of it, um, and but then change the whole system over time, and then you know both components become um, maybe equally important to maintain the chronicity of the disease. I mean, there may be one example to that statement. So I mentioned Parkinson's disease um, briefly. So in Parkinson's disease, um, there's some very intriguing findings that these degenerative, um, um, uh, um, these, these, these characteristic de- uh, degenerative changes that have been described in the brain, postmodern brain of um, Parkinson's patients, that they actually occur mm-hmm. much earlier, up to 20 years earlier in, in the nervous system of the gut, the so-called enteric nervous system, in a subset mm-hmm. of patients. And also that, that these, so they're called Lewy bodies, that they may actually move through the vagus nerve from the gut to the brain, first brain stem, and then then the brain, and that this process, you know, as I said, could take up to 20 years before the the, the classic uh, neurological symptoms appear. Hmm. So that's, you know, I I think in that case, that, that's kind of an, an well, I mean, it's not really an, an an exception because once once these degenerative changes reach the brain, it will change uh, the the autonomic um, function, the the, the vagal output to the back to the gut and constipation is an important feature of of parkinson we don't know if that constipation is a consequence of the degenerative changes in the enteric nervous system or in the autonomic nervous system but um there's clearly that feedback as well so now why what starts it in the gut we don't really know you know this there's cross-sectional studies that show there's an alteration in the gut microbiome in patients with with Parkinson's, but you know it's not known if that's due. Um, it could be a variety of factors. It could be because of the stress of this individual, because of the slower transit, because the you know the whole motility is impaired by the uh, enteric nervous system degeneration, and so the, the the microbial changes could all be secondary, or they could be primary. Yeah. Have you observed? Um bacteria from the gut getting through the blood-brain barrier or in the vicinity of the brain or in the brain cavity somehow? Um, no, so there's two answers. A, a very recent study um, showed, <coughs> was just um, presented a couple of weeks ago at the neuroscience meeting in, in, in San Diego. It, it So people were able to identify microbes in the brain of post-mortem you know, brains um, so these were people that were otherwise healthy, had no brain disease, but they had um, microbes could be detected in the brain. So it's it's one study needs to be confirmed, obviously, that it's not a contamination. But it's conceivable that just like in the in the placenta, which always has been considered sterile, uh, and we now know there's some bacteria that the same thing happens in in the brain. So the other um, the the other answer to this is. So the bacteria by themselves are unlikely to actually 
mediate this um, this gut microbiome brain communication. It's their metabolites um, or you know in, uh, immune signals or nerve signals that are triggered in the gut by the microbes and then affect the the, the nervous system. So I, I think you know to to answer this preliminary um, tentative. There may be some microbes in the brain. We don't know what they do, if they have any negative effect. But much more likely that microbes in the gut um, produce metabolites, so-called neuroactive metabolites, that they can go to the brain, can cross the blood-brain barrier, or that act on the vagal, vagus nerve to send signals to the brain, or they interact with the immune system, which we do know, and thereby changing immune signaling to the brain. So what do you think is an uh, or what has what's an easier way to study what's going on in someone's gut is it the looking at the bacteria themselves or the metabolites themselves do you really need to look at both in order to get an understanding of what's going on? So the field is clearly moving towards characterizing the function which means metabolites um or um you know gene expression profiles um so there's all these omics, you know, metabolomics, metabolites, proteomics, the proteins that are being, um, the production is influenced by the microbes, metatranscriptomics, so which genes are being transcribed. The, the, the research goes rapidly in that direction. So the actual uh, number and relative abundances, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're still important. So, for example, you know, a, a, a very important concept in gut microbiome, microbiome research in general, is the the ecological view of the microbiome, <clears throat> that it's a big ecosystem. And, you know, we know a lot about ecosystem um, behavior. So the diversity of an ecosystem and the, the relative abundances of, of elements in an ecosystem play a major role in in determining the, the the resilience and the stability of that ecosystem. So, you know, what we see in, in Western populations that there has been this progressive decrease in the um in the in the diversity in, in all measures of diversity of the gut microbiome. People think that up to forty percent reduction in the in the diversity. And decreased diversity has been taken as a um as a predictor of that these microbiomes are more vulnerable to insults, be it infections, being you know um, reactions to, to different diets. So that's where where the the numbers and like th- this technique, the 16S sequencing, is still important. But actually, to to, uh, to you know to determine the mechanisms by which the microbes affect affect the brain and and other organ functions, it's really these other techniques that are so rapidly. Taking over, most likely we'll 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 see both of these or a combination of these techniques um, continue to to uh, to be used. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I didn't realize so much was involved. Wow. So what uh, what in particular? Where do you want to take the research, or where are you taking the research uh, in particular? Well, so since you know, since I'm a gastroenterologist and um, with a long-standing interest in so-called functional brain gut disorders, which are now renamed really. Uh, disorders of brain-gut interactions. Um, so we want to essentially establish: is there a causal relationship uh, between altered gut microbes and um, altered brain activity, brain function, behavioral changes such as uh, increased stress responsiveness, increased pain sensitivity? Um, so this is one thing, and 
um, we're, we're sort of pursuing this with sort of following the, the big data um, paradigm. We have, you know, by, by now we have like a thousand patients. Um, well, we have all the data from the brain behavior, clinical microbiome, and we want to see which is likely are there subgroups of of patients that may have the same symptoms, but the symptoms are generated by different types of microbial disturbances. So that's one. Another thing that um, continue to be very interesting and pursue this um, these mind based therapies. You know, how can you change um, a dysregulation of the gut microbiome simply by um, sending, um, teaching the brain to send different signals. And the third one is is dietary intervention. So I, I developed a really strong interest in in the role of diet um, in in influencing gut microbial diversity and function. And it's it's interesting that I think one and this was not anticipated when microbiome science sort of you know became so prominent and grew exponentially that it would require that nutritional sciences are going to become much stricter uh, and much more scientific. And <clears throat> I, I think from all the evidence that we currently have is that, you know, instead of having these culture wars over what's the best diet, if you if you go by the, the, the microbiome, what's best for the, for the human gut microbiome and what's best supported by epidemiological studies about health benefits, uh, there's there's no question that Predominantly plant-based diets, um, you know, win in, in this. And it's not. There's there's a few a few exceptions for temporary changes in in these dietary patterns that are optimal. <clears throat> so in children with um, therapy refractory um, uh, seizures, um, epileptic seizures, a um, ketogenic diet seems, seems to be um, beneficial. Certainly not as a long-term right. therapy, but clearly as a you know therapeutic intervention. Some people think that um, a, a diet that's low in 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 in, in certain complex fibers, the so-called FODMAP diet, is beneficial for IBS patients. I'm sort of skeptical of this long-term benefits of that intervention. But overall, I think, and this has really been an influence, a very strong influence on my own thinking that mm-hmm. that diet. Um, well, I mean, diet and mind are, are the two factors I think that are currently. I mean, this may all change in in ten, twenty years, but currently the most right. effective therapeutic intervention. Well, what about uh, fecal transplants? Those for a while seem to be in the news a lot. Now it's gone quiet. Yeah, the, the reason it's gone quiet because you know it's it's kind of a miracle therapy if, if you have um, C. difficile colitis, an overgrowth of a particular organism. This um, Clostridium difficile, um, then, you know, this is by far the most effective therapy. But unfortunately, d- despite multiple trials going on in IBS, in, in inflammatory bowel disease, and autism, there's really not been a major uh, demonstration uh, that that would say this, this works equally well. And, you know, I mean, the main reason for that, in my opinion, is that even a an altered um, and a dysfunctional um, microbiome is still very stable, you know, because it's it's an ecosystem. It's not, um, and it will defend itself to any attempts to 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 change it. Like with so with a fecal microbial transplant, you would want to get rid of the old structure and replace it with a new one. People have tried to combine this with doing first um, antibiotic treatments to wipe out the, the dysfunctional um, 
you know, microbiome and then do the, the transplant. People are doing repeated transplants over several weeks. So there's, there's many things going on. But the, the short story is that so far, the success from the CTFCL colitis treatment has not been able to be replicated in, in any other disease. Well, if it's hard to, um, you know, if it's hard to change the microbiome, is it just something that happens slowly over time? You know, let's say I, um, you know, I change my diet or I eat a, you know, a bad diet for a period of time. How long will it take my microbiome to react? Is there any data or studies uh, that looks at that? Yeah, so that can happen fairly quickly. The, and what what changes the most is really the, so it, it, it's the relative abundance and the metabolites are being produced. So the metabolites, obviously, if you feed your microbes something different, they will change producing different different metabolites. The typically, if you stop that particular diet, it will it will slip back to to the original to the default um, configuration that was programmed during the first three years of your life. So we have a you have this period where the basic architecture is established um, three years, and then it's fairly stable for the rest of our lives. But what you can do is you can you can manipulate it and, and modulate it by <clears throat> dietary changes, by taking antibiotics. Typically, it always bounces back to its original state when you stop these interventions. Um, you know, there's some exceptions, obviously. Like the C. difficile colitis happens in people that get um, get antibiotics, but it's a small subset of patients where that happens. But normally, it's a very stable system and what happens in a disease state, it just assumes another stable state. You know, it, it doesn't completely use uh, lose its 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 stability landscape. It 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 just switches to another stable state, which is a disease state. And um, but then it bounces back to the to the original state if if the intervention stops. Another point is important to remember. So we assume that you know the I mentioned this the plant based diet leads to a high short-chain fatty acid production by microbes, and that's beneficial for our gut and our, most of our um, functions of our uh, body and brain. Mm-hmm. And um, that that ability to to generate the short-chain fatty acids in Western countries is significantly lower than, for example, in in populations, you know, populations that have studied in, in, in Africa and South America, that, that eat kind of um, hunter-gatherer diets, and we we it doesn't seem to be possible to get back, no matter how many vegetables and 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 fruits you eat, to get back to that same diversity that that these these people have, these tribes have. Um, so our capacity, our bandwidth to return to the optimal state is is limited, and this is something that uh, most investigators think. Is a consequence of what happens early in life. That um, you know, the exposure to antibiotics, uh, both the the mother, the infant, uh, the, the the dietary patterns of the pregnant mother, that all they um, have the ability to program this early life um, um, microbiome, and which then stays with us at a at a compromised level. So, if you want to do something dramatically, some people propose that you would have to do a fecal microbial transplant, either you know from a super healthy individual or um, one of these primal people, these hunter gatherers, and then it's possible then that this this infant, uh, this person, for the rest of their lives, 
would have the optimal uh, diversity of a microbiome. Um, so if it if it's going to come to that, you know, if if people, I mean, there's obviously risks involved with this as well. But I, I think the interventions, both dietary, um, medication-wise, with the reduction of medications and potentially fecal microbial transplants or administrations of microbes that we have lost in in the in, in the Western world. Um, if you do this in the first three years of life, you could have a dramatic, long-lasting effect. So a purely dietary intervention, I mean, what are some basic parameters on how long you think it might take to have an effect on the microbiome in a, in a, in a way that you want and one that will be sustained? Well, in an, in an adult, so let's assume the, the, the example, you know, somebody um, grows up on, on fast food, then somehow has this eureka moment to say, okay, now I'm going to go on the healthiest uh, Mediterranean um, you know, largely plant-based diet. It will change fairly quickly. It will stay um, optimal for as long as you eat this diet. If that individual goes back to its original fast food diet, it will just switch back to the original. So it's not, you know, it's 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 not maintained. Um, so our recommendations to people, you know, dietary-wise, is these are these are lifelong changes you have to make. This is not something that you can temporarily fix, you know, eating uh, all kinds of probiotics or prebiotics or a lot of fiber. You have this has to become a a a lifestyle, a, a long-lasting lifestyle change. It's not it's not okay. necessarily what, what 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 people like to hear, you know, they everybody wants to have these quick fixes, but um, you know, it's 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 kind of similar when you think about uh, all these failed diet therapies for obesity, which clearly in Involve to a certain degree the the microbiome as well, uh, and you know some of, some of them are quite successful as long as you stick with them. But the minute mm. people stop, you know it bounces back and actually overshoots the the, the baseline um, level of obesity. You know if, if you stop it and, and go back to your to your regular diet. Well, you said that the um, the microbiome is resistant; it, it gets into a certain state and it wants to stay there. Maybe just a few comments on you know, what are the main modulators of keeping the microbiome in a certain state versus another? And are there are there sweet spots that it can drop into where it'll be more stable than in other, you know, conditions? Yeah, and this is this whole concept about the stability landscape of ecosystems. <clears throat> so in a healthy person, the state it is in is is so you know, the deepest and and, and, and the most resistant to change. If you are genetically vulnerable or, you know, had a lot of negative things happen early on in life during the programming phase. That initial steps of that stability valley um, is 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 much smaller, and it's much easier to be per, be perturbed and assume another stability state. And for most, you know, um, for for chronic diseases, typically that chronic disease um, stability state. Is is fairly resistant to change. That's why it's chronic. Uh, for other diseases, you know, a, acute, transient, short-term diseases, it's it bounces back to the original healthy state. So, I mean, you could look at the whole, you know, our, I mean, the whole landscape in which health and disease is is situated. It's this landscape with mountains and and valleys, somewhat deeper, somewhat shallower, and uh, the 
the deeper and the more stable the the original the baseline state is, the, the much less likely is that you're going to be switched to any of these other either transient or or chronic states of, of system dysfunction. Well, I would think that we would want to study you know ways to disrupt an unhealthy microbiome and to get it into a healthier state, and then ways to to keep it there. You know. Yeah, and and that's that, you know. So we talked a little bit about this. So one attempt for that would be. Um, aggressive treatment with broad-spectrum antibiotics to knock out pretty much the, um, or, or to, to diminish the diversity and stability of your disease state, and then come in either with, you know, fecal diet or the, um, fecal microbial transplant. So that's clearly an avenue I think people will have taken in autism spectrum. Um, the danger is, you know, you could cause a lot of harm. I mean, for, for a, a, a person to undergo long-term broad-spectrum antibiotic treatment to knock out your microbiome. I mean, you could develop all kinds of other things in this process. Um, but I think we well, will learn... targeted... Um, are there yet, is there yet anyone studying um, targeted microbe killers or specific microbes in the gut? Yes, that's another approach. Uh, so these specific microcidal agents, uh, that has been... That approach has been used in the oral microbiome. Um, so there's a particular organism that greatly increases the risk for tooth decay um, and gum disease. And uh, there's an investigator formerly at, at UCLA who has developed a, a compound that can knock out that particular organism. And so that's another... Um, we, we haven't found any of these types of specific organisms in the gut. So you can't say in obesity there's one that, you know, it's bad, and if you get rid of this, then 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 you become lean again. Or uh, so that has not. This could also. I mean, this is a quite. It's it's a potential scenario, you know, that that you would um, would basically engineer the adult microbiome in a way that. Um, I mean, there's also this whole thing about you know the the, the stability of the the microbiome is called colonization resistance. So it's so stable that it won't let other organisms set foot inside of that ecosystem. So people have worked on techniques and strategies to overcome that selectively for a particular organism. And so that, that may be another approach, you know, that you that, that, that we learn techniques to selectively break into the this very controlled environment by inserting certain mm. certain organisms. That, but I mean, my opinion, you know. We're in such an early stage of this field, even though yeah. you know, millions of money has gone in from from investors and uh, all the startups. But I think, to, like any of these um, strategies that I mentioned, um, other than what's <clears throat> what's most effective now, you know, which is very dietary, um, this will take time, and this will because we know we we still know so little about that that system that. Manipulating it or knocking out particular organisms, or it's it it always has the risk of that. You know the Australia example where they um, where they let um, rabbits loose at some point and not thinking about what this would do to the ecosystem. And I I, I think that's the danger that 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 many approaches that do not um, follow this ecological viewpoint of the microbiome. Uh, that mm. this is a risk that they run. You know, it's not. This is not traditional microbiology. It's not traditional um, 
pharmacology. This is really ecosystem or systems biology science. That makes sense, yeah. Okay. Well, very good, Emran. So um, let's give some resources to listeners. You know, so the mind-gut connection, your book sounds like a very good place to start. I'm sure it's on Amazon and other places. Um, any other references or places that people should look when thinking about their own health or wanting to learn more about this subject? Yeah, so, you know, our, our website, so it's emeronmayer.com, <clears throat> um, is a good place because you can also, once on the website, sign up for for our newsletter, um, for our, uh, we have a series called The Mind Gut Conversation, where, where I interview, just like you do, you interview me now as I interview prominent uh, people in the field. Hmm. Um, Facebook page um, uh, at emeronameyer.com. Uh, no, at, at emeronameyer. So okay. th- those three, I would say, um, you know, I mean, the book obviously now in, out in paperback has a lot of the information, the, the basic information and the ongoing, the update on, on what's going on will be found on the on the website or on the Facebook. Okay. Well, very good. Emeron, thank you so much for coming. And it's been a, I mean, there's still millions of more things to ask you, but this was a great start. So I appreciate you being here. Okay, Rich. Good talking to you. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.